0: Welcome back to IGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. My name is Victor Shee. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA. Was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden and also co-host this podcast.
1: And I'm Jill Wine Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl. Based on my experience as a Watergate prosecutor, I'm also the wearer of hashtag Jill's Pins. And today's pins reflect the rivalry between Barb McQuaid from Detroit and me from Chicago about whose hot dogs are better. So I take it that we will win because Chicago has a bigger population if you have to vote. Um, I also am the co-host of two Politicon podcasts. This one, of course, IGN Politics, but also Hashtag Sisters-in-Law, which is very relevant to our guest today.
0: And I am on Jill's side when it comes to hot dogs. Chicago will win. Um, over the course of the next month, I, Politics will be talking with the hosts of Jill's other podcast, Hashtag Sisters in Law, Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and Kimberly Atkins Store. Each of them has an exceptional career All are not only current podcast co-hosts, but also our analysts on MSNBC, and two are professors, and one is an opinion writer for the Boston Globe and a frequent host on NPR. We'll get to learn more about each of them, their careers, their lives, and of course dive into some of the biggest issues of the day affecting law, politics, and culture. It's going to be such an exciting series. I'm now going to let Jill introduce our first Hashtag Sisters in Law guest.
1: And that person is Barb McQuaid who currently, as Victor said, is the co-host of Hashtag Sisters in Law. She's also an MSNBC legal analyst and a law professor at the University of Michigan School of Law. Prior to that, she was the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, the first woman to hold that position. She started her career as a law clerk for the Honorable Bernard Friedman on the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Michigan, did a stint in private practice, and then became an assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Michigan, where she served for more than a decade before President Obama picked her to be the, the U.S. attorney for that district. This is going to be a great episode, and I can already feel the sisterhood. So let's get started. Barb, thank you so much for joining for the first crossover series of IGen Politics and Hashtag Sisters-in-Law.
2: Oh, I am so glad to be with you, Jill and Victor. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: It is such an enormous treat for our audience. And one of the things that we love doing on this podcast is trying to give our our audience a better understanding of who they see on TV and read on social media and the opinion pages. And I think there's no better way to start off than your story, which seems as Michigan as it gets. You were born in Detroit and then went to the University of Michigan for both undergrad and law school. So I guess right off the bat, I'm assuming that you love Michigan.
2: I do love Michigan. Um, there's much to love about Michigan. If you seek a pleasant peninsula, look about you, Victor. That's our <laughs> state motto. Now, I, lo- I love Michigan. You know, I think one of the things I love about Michigan is not only its natural beauty, you know, we, we are surrounded by the Great Lakes, so we have beautiful beaches and sand and water. Um, but like like uh, Jill, you in, in Illinois, and Victor, I know that's where you hail from. You know, the Midwest is a place that people aren't attracted to because of the weather or other kinds of things. The people who are here are here usually because of family. Family matters to them. Family is uh, the highest priority. And so, you know, it attracts a certain kind of person that I find uh, I enjoy, you know, endearing uh, people who are supportive and loving. And so I really like it here.
0: Definitely. And because we have so many young listeners in the audience, talk a little bit about your undergraduate days. Um, What did you study and what was most impactful to you um, during that time?
2: Well, my major was uh, a double major in economics and communication, but what I say I really majored in was the Michigan Daily, which Mm -hmm. was the campus newspaper. I spent a lot of time uh, on the paper. Uh, I covered sports. I got to go to a Rose Bowl there in California. Victor, you're stomping grounds now. Uh, At the time, Jim Harbaugh, who's now the Michigan coach, was the quarterback of the team. So that was really, really fun. And it was an interesting time. Women were becoming sports writers, but it was still kind of a novelty. So there were times when I was banned from locker rooms. But I'm pleased to say that Bo Schembeckler, who was the you know hard scrabble old school Michigan football coach, was always very, very good to me. In fact, perhaps because I was one of the only women in the, the, the crowd, he was able to learn my name. And so he always called on me first and you <laughs> know was very, very good to me and, and the others and treated us pretty well. But I, I was inspired to uh follow journalism from uh, watching Watergate as a young child mm-hmm. and seeing people like Jill Wine-Banks as Watergate prosecutors, all the president's men, Woodward and Bernstein. I was going to be the next Woodward mm-hmm. and Bernstein.
0: It's so remarkable. And so you started off, I guess you had an interest in journalism. So then how did you go to law school or what inspired you to go to law school?
2: I love journalism. I think journalism is incredibly important and plays a really important watchdog role in our society. Um, But I think that at some point I wanted to be in the arena. I didn't want to be just commenting on the arena. Um, I wanted to be doing the work and not just writing about it. And so um, that's what attracted me to law school. And, you know, from there, I did find opportunities to do the same kind of work that watchdog function as a lawyer that I so aspired to as a journalist. Um, so the, when I was a law clerk, my first job out of law school, I had a chance to watch a public corruption trial in the courtroom of the judge that I was clerking for. And it was the pilot for the city of Detroit who had, um, you know, the city of Detroit in in really dire financial straits, they had a jet and they had a pilot and he would take city officials on junkets like, uh, You know, gambling in Las Vegas and the NBA All Star game and other places, and then lie about it and say they were traveling on city business. And I watched these lawyers put together that case in a way that I found, you know, really interesting. It was really challenging, but they pulled it all together and explained it in a way that was really understandable and compelling to a jury. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to do that. It really combined those two passions of the gatekeeper role and watchdog role of journalism with the skills I enjoyed as a lawyer. And so that is what uh, launched me on my career as a prosecutor.
1: It's so interesting to hear that, Barb, because as much as I've known you for all these years now, I never knew that you wanted to be a journalist first. And my undergraduate degree is in journalism. Mm -hmm. And I went to law school because I thought it would get me a better job in journalism and didn't realize that discrimination in journalism was as was even worse in law, but um, that's so interesting. And when I had a chance to actually go into journalism, I reached the same conclusion you did was I'd rather be making the news than reporting the news. And that's why I decided to stick with law. So that's, that's really interesting. One thing you didn't mention when you were talking about loving Michigan is Detroit hot dogs. (laughs) I of course know that Chicago hot dogs are better (laughs) And hence, I'm wearing today a giant pin, although not as big a pin as I oh, wow. actually have, which I'm now holding that up is giant. for Chicago hot dogs. But I am wearing your Detroit hot dog. Looking forward to when we can be in Detroit so I can taste a Detroit hot dog. Thank you, Cheryl. And so I-, I did, of course, know about your love of sports. And the other thing that I want our audience to know is, you have the best sense of humor and you are the wittiest. Um, I I love learning that about you, but you have some very strange holdbacks, like you won't do underwear or toilet paper ads. And unless, of course, the underwear has pockets, you might do it then. <laughs> I so do you love pockets. To talk about that, you know, for someone who is as confident and bold in the public arena, how that Comes about that you have that hesitation.
2: Wait a second. So you're going to make me talk about the things I don't want to talk about? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought I yes. had an out clause in my That's contract my for that. <laughs> that. I'm going to demand double. You're going to have to double my pay for that, Jill. Double my. Okay. My I, I definitely fee. will. Yeah. Um. You know, I just think it comes from a place of privacy. It's not a. You know, if I were talking about a case and had to discuss, a, you know, a, a sexual assault case or. A, And it was important to discuss certain terms. I would certainly have no qualms about that. It's really about um, probably my upbringing of uh, what I consider to be private. You know, like to me, we really crossed a big barrier when Bill Clinton was asked boxers or briefs. And not only was he asked the question, (laughs) but he answered it. God, isn't anything private anymore? So um, I I don't know if it's... uh, a reluctance to discuss certain topics. It's a reluctance to share about myself on those topics. I did say bloated okay, I last that. week, Jill, you'll notice, because it wasn't about me. Uh, it's about you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's because I said I wouldn't say
1: the word. That's why. Okay. So let's go back to talking about advice for young people. Um, I always talk to young people about law school as a great way to learn critical thinking skills, problem solving skills, things that are invaluable no matter what occupation you end up in. And um, I'm wondering, first of all, if you feel the same way about it, is that a valid thing or is law school only for people who really want to be lawyers?
2: I I completely agree. You know, I think now because law school is so expensive and it is a big chunk of your time, people advise young people that you should only go to law school if you're absolutely certain you know what kind of lawyer you wanna be. And I disagree with that advice. I think that it's hard to know exactly what kind of lawyer you wanna be. And in fact, just like going to college, Most people end up evolving and moving on through different things as well. And I agree with you. I think it is um, a really great way to learn critical thinking skills. Um, As you said, Jill, it is a disciplined form of thinking. You have to think in terms of elements of offenses. It isn't about someone generally doing something bad makes them criminal, which is sometimes hard for members of the public to understand. It isn't that someone did something bad. Um, It is that they did it bad exactly the way Congress, Congress or the legislature has uh, drafted in a statute. It has to be each element of a crime. Um, you uh, Another big part of thinking like a lawyer, besides thinking about the elements of offenses, is um, comparing and contrasting with prior precedent. Is this more like the prior case or is it different from the prior case? And if it's different, is it di- different in a meaningful way? All cases are different in some ways. Um, and you can say it's a distinction with not a different, a difference without a distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it is um, you know, only different in peripheral ways. And that's a big part of what lawyers do is they advocate for their clients saying, this is just like this prior precedent and therefore you should rule the same way. And the other side might say, it's different from that prior precedent. It's, it's different in the following important ways. And because we can distinguish the case, you should also rule in a different way. And that requires a discipline of thinking. So I, I agree with you that I think it's useful for everybody if you want to be an informed and engaged citizen to learn how to think like a lawyer.
0: Can you Talk a little bit about your um, experiences at UMICH and compare that for undergrad and law school and what you found to be most different um, between those experiences.
2: They were very different, but very enjoyable in different ways. As an undergraduate, uh, the University of Michigan felt big and it is big, you know, some, I don't know, 40,000 students or something like that. It's enormous. I I had classes all over campus. Um, I went to talks and lectures and sporting events and musical performances and met students from all over the world. And it was, you know, wonderful. And the Michigan Daily was my way of making that huge university smaller. And that was kind of my cohort of friends. Um, the law school is much smaller. a class is about 320 people. Uh, so the whole law school is under a thousand students. And unlike a lot of law schools, there's a law dorm. It's called the Lawyer's Club. Oh, wow. It's beautiful. It's this, you know, beautiful courtyard with a dining hall and a library attached. And um, most of the first year students live within the lawyers club. And so I went from this enormous university to a very small school experience. And um, you know, they say, some people say going to law school at Michigan is like going back to high school. It's not, it's more <laughs> like going back to junior high school. Um, it's kind of law school meets summer camp, which I loved. I thought it was wonderful. I made really, really close friendships During that time, which is kind of nice when you're going through something as rigorous as law school, and you know you're in the trenches together with other people who I found so interesting, so smart, so supportive, and it was great to have people like that to vent with. I really felt sorry for our law students when they were going through COVID and isolated, because I think a really important part of the law school experience, at least our law school community and, and many others, is getting to know classmates so you have someone to vent with and roll your eyes with and mock professors with. Um, and I think when you're in isolation, you lose that, but we had a lot of fun. Um, you know, we played pranks on each other and threw balls in the law quad and it was a really joyful time. Um, I, I, you know, some people say, uh, you know, I, I'm glad I went to law school. That was an important part of my development, but I didn't enjoy it at all. I really enjoyed law school. I like to think part of it is because of the atmosphere at Michigan. Was a very fosters a very supportive relationship with fellow students, but my classmates were just fantastic, and, and you know, close friends with many of them to this day.
1: Yeah, it, that sort of reflects my experience going from a huge Big Ten college to um, a a school with oh, a little more than a thousand. We had, I think, fifteen hundred. Um, so it was it was really small, and we got to know each other. I mean, you knew everybody mm-hmm. in the school, so that that made a big difference. And and I, but I hated my first year. I if you don't want to be a lawyer, the first year is torture. And I took a leave of absence to actually try to do something in journalism, and when I came back to finish thinking that it would help me do lobbying, which I had done during my year as a journalist, um, I found that I actually liked things like moot court and trial practice, and that I had finally found a place that I really wanted to be. But anyway, you, you went from law school into a clerkship, very prestigious thing to do. And so for the aspiring lawyers listening to us, talk about The benefits of a clerkship versus going straight into a law firm or into a government job or a corporate job you know, any of the other choices for lawyers.
2: Yeah, I love my clerkship. A part of it is uh, finding a judge that's a good match for you. And I was so fortunate to have a wonderful, wonderful judge, Bernard Friedman, who I'm still close to to this day. He's been a wonderful mentor and friend throughout my career. And that's one of the advantages of a clerkship is developing that mentoring role. You know, someone who's already a judge Mm -hmm. who can share a lot with you about the profession uh, and you can learn a lot. Um, You know, I'm sympathetic that it's not for everyone because some people have these days enormous student loans and it is very modest pay uh, as a clerkship. In fact, it's becoming more common for people to go work in a large law firm for a little while And then do a clerkship because they have a little more experience at that point. But I think it's also a little more affordable. But if you can afford it, I think it's a great investment in yourself and in your career. And oftentimes you get a clerkship bonus when you join a firm if you've been a law law clerk, though certainly not the same uh, value you would get if you worked in a firm. Jill, do you know what the starting salary is for Wall Street firms these days?
1: I'm afraid to
2: ask. $225,000. And because people can join remotely- Work remotely now, um they're paying that all over the country, so jones day, New York pays that for for Detroit as well. Wow, so it's pretty tough oh. to and so if you've got staggering student loans, it's pretty tough to pass pass that up. so that's a real cost, but you wow. know if you're so Barb- but if you're thinking long term, you know most people leave those law firm jobs eventually it's It's certainly a fine thing to do. If that's what you, you know, choose to do for your whole career, we need people in private practice uh, helping the corporate world go round. But many people will do that for a few years and then leave. Um, I did this clerkship first, and I, I still think it's a great investment in yourself if you can afford it. Um, it is modest pay. You're a government employee. But um, I found, one, it exposed me to all kinds of law. For example, it was there that I saw the work of the U.S. Attorney's Office and decided I wanted to be a prosecutor. I never would have had that window into what prosecutors do if I had not had that experience. But you also really hone your writing and research skills. That's much of what you do. The lawyers submit briefs, and then you read the briefs, you read the cases, you prepare a bench memo for the judge, the judge hears motions, um, you discuss with the judge how he wants to rule, and then you draft the opinion and order, and then the judge marks it up and you learn you know, the direct feedback to improve your own writing and research. But you also see the whole spectrum of lawyering from very good to very bad. And you get the feedback of a judge about what was effective and what was not effective. And so it's really educational. You also build relationships within the courthouse. I became friends with all of the other law clerks in the building who are now partners in law firms and doing other things, judges themselves. You get to know all the other judges and all the courthouse personnel. And that has value as you practice throughout your career, if it's the same city where you're going to practice. So I thought clerking was really a tremendous, tremendous uh, growth opportunity for me.
1: So I just said, oh, wow, when you gave me the current Wall Street salary, just to age myself. (laughs) When I graduated law school, do you know how much the starting salary was? And it doubled. The year that I graduated, because my class all wanted to do public service.
2: Mm.
1: Do you have any idea in nineteen sixty eight what the salary was?
2: No, tell us. I bet we're going to be shocked.
1: Ah, uh, fifteen thousand. Wow. wow! Oh my goodness. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, the cost of living and was
2: much less then, right? But not that much. It, I think it's it, really, it, um, you know, gone no, up exponentially.
1: It, it was. It, it definitely. I mean, I. I could live fine on that and ended up choosing to go into government, which paid eleven thousand. Mm-hmm. So that's it seems like you know it's a huge difference percentage wise, you know, fifteen to eleven anyway. Um, I thought that yeah. was pretty shocking. Yeah. Um, so but you did eventually after your clerkship, you did go into private practice for a little while. Mm-hmm. So what kind of practice did you what what was your specialty there?
2: Yeah, large firm, um, you know mostly corporation, suing corporation. And I got a lot of good experience there. I did, you know, depositions and uh, motion work and uh, document review and answered interrogatories, all the things that people do in large law firms. I actually liked my firm. I worked with nice people. I enjoyed it. But I found that um, oftentimes the work was... Um, It was litigation, not trial work, if you know the difference. So it is, you sort of work through the case. You try to get it all ready for a motion for summary judgment. You file the motion for summary judgment. If you win, the case is over. More often than not, you don't win, but you have pared down the issues for trial. And at that point, um, people higher up on the case than I was, the partners, would then settle the case. And that was the process. And after a while, you know, I'd say, wow, I did all that work for nothing. And the partner would say, no, it wasn't for nothing. It helped us to assess the value of the case. And that was what permitted us to reach a settlement. Both sides were honing, you know, the value of the case. But after about five years of that, you know, I learned a lot and I thought I'm ready to move on. And I I had actually been applying to the U.S. Attorney's Office every six months from the time of my clerkship. (laughs) But it's not the kind of place that typically hires people right out of law school or right out of a clerkship, just because- Mm -hmm. The applicant pool is so competitive, you know, few, very few people leave. And so they only hire a few people a year. And the people applying are, you know, people with far more experience than I had. And so it wasn't until five years at the firm that I finally got the call that uh, I, I got an offer from the US Attorney's Office and, and went there and was just thrilled to do that work.
0: Amazing. So after a dozen years as an assistant U.S. attorney, in January of 2010, you became a U.S. attorney in the same district in which you served as an assistant U.S. attorney, um, which means that you went from being a line attorney to supervising all of the assistant U.S. attorneys and setting policies and priorities for them. Um, It seems you are ready to take control upon taking office as U.S. attorney because you structured, I guess you restructured the office for the first time in 35 years um, to align priorities with the issues that the Eastern District of Michigan was facing. Tell us a little bit about what that restructuring looked like and why do you think it took so long?
2: Well, I think having been in the office gave me a lot of insights. You know, very often a person becomes a U.S. attorney from the outside. Many of them have been AUSAs, assistant U.S. attorneys, at some point in their career. Some of them have never been assistant U.S. attorneys. They've come from being general counsel um, in um, a corporation or working in a law firm, and I can't imagine how those people are successful, but I guess they're supported by their assistants and by main justice. But having been in the office for twelve years, I had a lot of insights that I think helped me to one recognize the value of all the people around me and trust people uh, to do their jobs, so that um, I wasn't trying to do everybody else's job. I was able to just, um, you know, bring what I thought were priorities and do other things like that realignment. But I'll tell you, talk about you know hitting the ground um, running in the last seven years of my work there, I was um, the anti-terrorism coordinator, um, the deputy chief of the national security unit. And so I'd spent a lot of time working on national security cases. I was confirmed on Christmas Eve of 2009 by the U.S. Senate after having been nominated by President Obama in November. And then on Christmas Day, the very next day, um, an Al-Qaeda operative tried to blow up a plane over Detroit with an under a bomb concealed in his underwear. He became known as the underwear bomber. There you said it, underwear. <laughs> See, I can do it when I'm talking about other people, Jill, just fine, but I'm not going to tell you what I'm wearing. Um, and having been in the office and having worked in the national security space, I was prepared. I knew what to do. We had a critical incident response plan. We knew how we we're supposed to communicate up to DOJ and with the field, with the FBI, and with our own people. Uh, we were very fortunate that his bomb failed, and the only person he injured was himself. Uh, but if he had been successful, if that bomb had succeeded, he was that plane was right over a suburban community near the airport on Christmas morning, and more than uh, you know, 289 people on board the flight uh, would have died. So it was. Mm-hmm. Um, A big case right out off the bat because he survived we prosecuted the case um, with a number of terrorism statutes the case went very well after a couple days of trial he ended up pleading guilty Um, but i felt well prepared because of the time i've been in the office and you know one of the things you learn victor in in doing these jobs is you can't do it all yourself um but it's really important to know who has the skills who to ask who to call, and how to tap into resources. And so because I had been in the job for 12 years, I was able to hit the ground running. But you, you asked about realigning the office and it, it had not done, been done in 35 years. I think because people are busy. You know, when you're working in an office, you're busy putting out fires. There's a new case every day and you're running to put it out. But I wanted to take a step back and think about the ways the office had evolved since the 1970s when I was now in the early 2000s. And so like uh, one of the things was um, developing a national security unit that wasn't just a counterterrorism unit that had been uh, created right after 9-11, but focused on all kinds of things like threats, domestic terrorism, um, export and import violations, hoaxes that were becoming much more prevalent, threats to public officials. So we expanded our, our scope there to national security. We created a standalone public corruption unit perhaps because of my longtime affinity for public corruption cases and the desire to hold people accountable, I found that people were doing public corruption cases, but it was only one of many things people were doing. And we needed a focused unit to focus all of their attention on that. And the other thing I did was create a civil rights unit. Um, I have long been a um, strong opponent of any sort of discrimination. Um, I shared with Jill that I think Um, shaped by my early experience as someone who loved baseball and whose parents told me I could be president of the United States one day to see as I grew a little older that those doors were closed to girls and women and being really shocked to learn that society um, would shun half of the world's talent uh, for misguided discriminatory reasons has always made me want to bust stereotypes and fight discrimination. So creating a civil rights unit was very important to me. And we did so much wonderful work in our civil rights unit, fair housing cases, uh, disabilities rights cases, religious rights cases. Um, There were um, in two instances, municipalities had denied zoning permits to one the right to build a mosque and the other to build an Islamic school. And we challenged both of those legally and got both of those built in those communities. So really proud of that work as well. And so that's what the realignment was about. Mm -hmm.
0: And I was doing a quick search up and it seemed like you were actually the first woman to also be nominated to serve as U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, correct?
2: I was. And, you know, just again, another um, artificial barrier that blocks women. And I was Honored to be the first woman U.S. attorney in my district, but also a little bit disgusted that it had taken that long. I mean, after, uh, you know, hundreds of years of male U.S. attorneys, um, it was wonderful and Uh, You know, I I think once you break that barrier, then other women will come behind you. I'm I'm really pleased that we now have another woman who is currently the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. She is the first African-American woman to be the U.S. attorney. So, so many of these artificial barriers that have been placed, um, you know, for women, for racial minorities, for ethnic and religious minorities that are just such foolish obstacles to, you know, if you had a talent pool, why would you, you know, take out half and say, you know, everybody with blue eyes, you're out of the game. You know, everybody with uh, uh, brown hair, you're out of the game. We're only going to choose this group of people. You know, how foolish is that? And so, um, although I'm I'm proud to have broken that barrier, it was really an idea whose time had come. In fact, an idea whose time had been long past. So I was glad that uh, I was there, but it was probably more right place at the right time. But, you know, it's
1: so interesting to hear you because, one of the things that I always think is a sign of real accomplishment is that your successor is also a woman. Mm-hmm. It means you didn't screw up and that people now say, oh, a woman could do that job when you're the first in a job. So that's a. it's good to hear that there is, an, again, another woman in the office. And I think that's important. But you mentioned one of the things you handled was threats to public officials. And so let me ask you about the Governor Whitmer case, Mm. because talk about threats to a public official. um, I think that's been a really horrendous circumstance. And the recent acquittal of the men charged with attempting to and conspiring to kidnap her uh, is quite surprising. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it means in terms of future cases and what it says about the jury?
2: Yes. Well, as you know, Jill, having tried cases, I am Um, reluctant to second-guess the decision of a jury. So I won't second-guess them, but I will um, engage in some conjecture and speculation. Um, You know, a jury gets to hear all of the testimony. They get to see all the witnesses. And so I think they are well-positioned to assess the case. I did follow it closely in the media, but I wasn't in the room. So uh, with that caveat, I'll say a couple of things. Um, They found two of the defendants not guilty of all charges, including a weapons charge, which was... You know, there's no uh, entrapment theory on that one. You know, he possessed a a, a sawed-off weapon and uh, firearm, and he was acquitted of that charge as well. Uh, But so two of the four defendants were acquitted. Two of the defendants... Um, were did, uh, did not get a verdict. There was a mistrial for two of them. So that means the jury was split and was hung on whether they were guilty or not guilty. The charges were conspiracy to kidnap mm-hmm. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and conspiracy to use weapons of mass destruction, which were explosives. Um, and the plot, as it was described during the trial, was that these um, four men, along with some others who were charged in the state, had were angry about COVID shutdown orders issued by the governor in the early days of the pandemic. And they planned to kidnap her. Um, they uh, surveilled her home twice, uh, which is in northern Michigan. She has a vacation home. Um, and, you know, to me, it's so important that this went beyond talk to action. They actually went to the home. They found it and they surveilled it with um, night vision goggles They um, built what they called a shoot house, a prototype, where they hung human silhouettes to practice with guns to extract her from her security detail. Um, They surveilled the underside of a bridge because they wanted to blow it up so that it would delay the police in responding to the scene of the kidnapping. Um, So all of those things, to me, take it out of the realm of mere talk and into the realm of action. Um, And the charge was conspiracy, which is an agreement. One of the men who was a member of this group was very disturbed by this plot. And so he he called the police and he told them about it. And the police um, called the FBI and the FBI asked him, would you be willing to stay involved as an informant to help us bring these offenders to justice? And he said, yes. And so this informant stayed on the inside and recorded conversations and shared with the police. He also introduced an undercover FBI employee as a member of the group who was also able to um, pretend to be part of the group and gather evidence. Um, The the defense was this was all just um, idle talk. And to the extent they were egged on and said these things, it was because the government pushed them to say those things. I never heard any evidence that the government did that, but that was the... Argument of the lawyers, um, as you know, Jill, the entrapment defense makes it a defense if the government either overcame the will of people um, to commit a crime, or you know, presented an irresistible uh, opportunity for people who are otherwise not predisposed to commit a crime, or engaged in significant outrageous misconduct. Um, I didn't hear anything that amounted to that. Um, you know, if the idea originates with defendants, then typically that's sufficient to defeat that defense. And so we get these verdicts. And how do you explain it? I um, I know that the demographics of Western Michigan are very conservative. It's a place that typically elects Republicans. Justin Amash, you may recall, was a member of Congress who was a Republican, a very conservative Republican, came from that district. He voted to impeach Donald Trump um, in the first impeachment and was uh, uh, unable to run again in that district because people were disgusted with his vote to impeach Donald Trump. So I think that gives you a little bit of the flavor of that part of the state. And so I worry that there perhaps were members of the state who were skeptical of the FBI. I worry that four years of Donald Trump pounding away on the theory that the FBI is corrupt and engages in witch hunts and hoaxes sensitized that part of our state to believe it Um, the fact that they were hung and it was not an acquittal says to me that not everybody, uh, has that view, but you know, at the time, Jill, you and I and others were saying every time Donald Trump pounds away at the FBI like this, he's making it harder for the FBI to do their job all over America. Um, if they want to be witnesses at trial, it's going to be harder for them to be believed when they knock on the door in a kidnapping case, looking for help, um, And witness testimony and information, people are going to be less likely to open the door. And I think we may be seeing the fruits of that now.
1: So you just mentioned Donald Trump in connection with, with this problem. And you also wrote a press memo, a prosecution memo in the form that you would do if you were in a prosecution office, a U.S. attorney's office, to present the case for why you should be prosecuted. And it was a compelling case of why, based on public evidence, not based on what the grand jury knows, which must be more or could be more than what is publicly known, we only know because of the committee, the January 6th committee, having public uh, information available. So could you talk about that memo as to why and what you thought was prosecutable about Donald Trump and maybe throw in, although you were talking only about a very specific federal case, talk about the um, DA brag in New York and what's happening or what's not happening in that case. Uh, It seems to, in my opinion, have been shut down, even though he's now publicly saying, well, it's not really shut down. I'm still looking, but you have the resignation of the two top prosecutors who were handling it, who say, you told us you weren't going to prosecute, that's why we quit. So if you could talk about those two things.
2: Yes. Well, I wrote this prosecution memo because I saw that it it seemed to me that we have amassed so much evidence in public, in plain sight, that just based on that, um, I kind of went through the process of writing a prosecution memo. And I don't know about you, Jill, I once heard George Will say this, I don't know what I think until I've written about it. And so I thought, well, if you were sketching out a prosecution memo, and this is what prosecutors do as they're building a case, you know, mine was always kind of a a dynamic process. What are the elements of the offenses? Um, what, What proof do I have? You know, put together a timeline. And I would kind of continue to build it as I was investigating. And then at some point, you know, do you have it? And after writing it, I thought, I think they have it. I think they have it already. And so the charges, and these were things that have been raised by Liz Cheney, Uh, on the January 6th committee, the charges are two. One is conspiracy to defraud the United States, and the other is obstruction of an official proceeding. Conspiracy to defraud the United States is the same charge that Robert Mueller used against the Russian intelligence officers and the Internet Research Agency relating to the 2016 election. And it just requires that someone with a fraudulent intent does something to obstruct an official function of government. So in this case, the theory would be that Donald Trump, through fraudulent intent, obstructed the certification of the vote for the 2020 presidential election, you know, on and before January 6th. Um, And then the obstruction of the official proceeding is with a corrupt intent. So the same corruption, the same fraud. Uh, obstructing that official proceeding, that is the January 6th counting of the vote. And to me, Jill, it it may be that they reach the point where they are able to connect Donald Trump up with the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and others who led the physical attack on the Capitol and, you know, Donald Trump's exhortations at the Ellipse uh, to go to march to the Capitol. But I don't think you need to go there. I think the act that is criminal here is simply pressuring Mike Pence to thwart the certification. And he did that in public. We know from his public comments, from his tweets, um, and some of the testimony of some of the January 6th witnesses, like uh, Pence's chief of staff and Pence's general counsel, that uh, Donald Trump was pressuring Mike Pence to uh, not certify the election that day, to stall, delay by 10 days, to um, question and challenge the votes out of certain states and then get throw it back to the House where the Republican had the majority of the delegations and could elect Donald Trump that way, the same way Rutherford B. Hayes had been elected. But that theory is only fair if you know um, uh, that there is some reason to declare the elections failed in the states. In fact, Donald Trump, I believe the evidence shows, knew that there was no fraud in the election because there is none. There's not a scintilla. And so- The hardest part of any kind of case is proving intent. And the jury instruction goes something like, because we cannot read another person's mind, um, you you can infer intent using your common sense, looking at all the things the person did, the person said, the person knew, um, and all the things that happened. And so in this case, you'd have to show for both of these charges that Donald Trump knew there was no fraud. And how do you know that? Well, there are a lot of ways. Um, William Barr told him there was no fraud. His handpicked... And very loyal attorney general. Uh, Chris Krebs told him he was his cybersecurity director for the National for the uh, Department of Homeland Security. He said it was the fairest election in history. Um, His own director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, certainly a very loyal Trump supporter, said there was no uh, intelligence to suggest a fraud in the election. Uh, 60 more than 60 legal challenges around the country were rejected, finding no fraud. And in fact, the one that disbarred Rudy Giuliani said, not only is there not overwhelming evidence of fraud, there's not a scintilla of evidence that there was fraud, not a scintilla of evidence. Um, Brad Raffensberger in Georgia told him there was no evidence of fraud. Rudy Giuliani on election night said, let's just say we won. And we know from even before the election, Donald Trump was saying, If there's vote by mail, this will be the most fraudulent election ever, even before there was any hint of it. So I think there's enough there already. But um, no doubt you want to do more investigation. And I think, as we just saw in the Whitmer case, all you need is, one, to hang a jury, um, that if you're going to have criminal charges against Donald Trump, that means you've got to get 12 strangers to convict him beyond a reasonable doubt. And so while we see what's in the public makes it, as a judge in California said, more likely than not that Donald Trump committed a crime— um, to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, I can see why the Justice Department would want to continue to, to um, pursue the evidence, not only to prove what happened, but to be able to discount any defenses and prove what did not happen. Um, and I believe they are doing that. The Justice Department doesn't investigate people. It investigates crimes. And Merrick Gar- Garland has already told us they're investigating January 6th and will hold accountable anyone at any level who's responsible for that assault in our democracy. So I think he's there. And I think they're going to get there. Um, As for what's going on in New York, I agree with you, Jill. I think it's unlikely they're going to get there. Um, It's disappointing, I think, to see those two prosecutors walk off the case. But I also know that reasonable minds can disagree about whether they think there's sufficient evidence to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. It sounds like, I don't know if you agree with this, Jill, um, reading between the lines that the two prosecutors are left were relying pretty heavily on Michael Cohen as a witness and that... Alvin Bragg did not want to rely on him very heavily as a witness. And so they thought they had it between documents and things like um, Donald Trump assessing the square footage of his apartment on um, Fifth Avenue at 30,000 square feet when it is in fact 10,000 square feet <laughs> is enough, an objective enough lie, <clears throat> or assessing a property to be worth $400,000 one year when it was only worth four hundred million million one year when it was worth only two hundred million million one just one year earlier, that that's enough, especially when you combine that with what Michael Cohen has to say about how he would inflate and deflate assets according to his needs. Um, but it sounds like what Alvin Bragg is saying. I don't think it's there yet, but we'll continue to investigate. And if we find more evidence, then we will bring charges. And I think these two prosecutors thought, you know, we're at the end of the line. We we know what we have. Um, we've looked wherever we need to look and it's just not there. Now, maybe someone like, Alan Weisselberg, the CEO who is charged with tax counts flips and, but it seems like all of that is pretty unlikely. So I'd be surprised if charges uh, develop eventually, Uh, but I guess Alvin Bragg has said, we're not going to stop looking, Um, but it seems that he's concluded that based on the evidence they have, it's not sufficient. And I, I don't doubt him by the way, he's elected by the people of New York to have this job. He's the one who gets to make this call. I don't think he's, you know, chicken or dumb or corrupt. I think he just appreciates just how hard it is to get a guilty verdict beyond a reasonable doubt and just thinks the evidence isn't there yet.
1: Yeah, I'm sad to say I think it probably is over and that there's not going to be some huge finding. I personally think that based on the public evidence, the documents as explained by Michael Cohn, would be a prosecutable case, in my opinion. I would certainly be willing to take that risk. Um, and criminals testify against other criminals. It's not unusual to have someone who is convicted of perjury or an even more serious crime um, be the one who is the key witness against any defendant. Sammy the Bull so, Gravano, would, right? Committed, I don't know, yeah. five murders or something. <laughs>
2: Right. Maybe today they're even more credible
1: than an FBI agent. John Dean was in jail when he was testifying for us because that's that's who knows about crimes. Unless it's a bank robbery where you have a customer who happens to be an eyewitness, most people who know about crimes, particularly serious white-collar crimes, are criminals. That's who knows about it. So, um, yeah, I I would certainly go ahead with it.
0: So- This question pertains to your position now, which is is that you missed law school as a law professor, which feels like a full circle moment given that you went there for undergrad law school and now is a law professor. Talk about what options you considered after leaving um, your time in government as a U.S. attorney and why you decided to become a law professor.
2: Well, you know, I I considered working in a large law firm. Um, I considered running for public office. Um, I considered going in-house at some corporations. But um, teaching really struck me as the place I wanted to be. You know, at this point in my career, what I really want to do is have a positive impact. Um, I, I don't I don't need to maximize wealth. I mean, the uh, you know, ways, ways to become rich are to earn more or desire less. And I've been pretty happy with a modest lifestyle um, all my life. So I desire less, I guess, than other people do. Um, But I wanted to have a positive impact. Like that is my currency is, uh, you know, I used to tell our prosecutors, we may not make the same salaries as the Wall Street law firms, but we get rich in other ways. And I think richer, it's a richer life when you're having a positive impact. And after, you know, what we saw in the election of 2016, I started this job in 2017. I I thought it was so incredibly important to help the next generation of lawyers understand the importance of the rule of law and have a deep respect and knowledge um, of the Constitution and of our norms and of our institutions. Because I think that there is a temptation to say, well, Trump blew it all up. And so opponents of Trump need to just fight back, fight fight fire with fire. And I think fighting fire with fire just means we all get burned. Um, What we really need to do is restore our institutions and the rule of law and our constitution. And I think that's what's so important. And so I had an opportunity to do that and I've loved it. Um, I've been teaching for five years now and I find it so enjoyable. It was not something I aspired to do because I thought it would be rather tedious after a while to teach the same courses, uh, year after year. But what I have found is although the doctrine stays the same, uh, sort of, it does evolve, um, the cases are always new and different. Like this year, we've been teaching self-defense and talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse case or the Ahmad Arbery case. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about sexual assault and we talk about the origins of rape law, about how it was all about either protecting the property of men or protecting men from false accusations and how that has evolved and is evolving And, you know, challenging students to think about how can we shape it to evolve further yet, Uh, you know, so much of the law is a work in progress. So it's been really fun and challenging, and I learned so much from students. I learn uh, more from them than they learn from me, I'm sure, Um, and it has made me, you know, uh, feel very challenged. I tell students that you should look for work that is interesting, challenging, and important, and to me, teaching is off the charts on that scale.
1: Boy, and are they lucky to have you. That is for sure. I wish I had had a professor who inspired me the way your statement just did.
0: And I also will say, because you said running for office and um, right before the conversation, um, I guess we had a bit of an exchange via email between you and Jill in terms of what we want to talk about. And you were saying that you were told as a young child that you couldn't be president. So I'm just launching on this podcast that hopefully one day, if you decide, we will Get you to become president as the first woman um, and break that barrier. Um, But this has been wonderful. Well, maybe
2: not me, but I I do hope that barrier gets broken in my lifetime. That would be a huge accomplishment.
1: Victor and I volunteer to
0: campaign for
1: you, no matter what the position is. And Victor's a great campaigner. He has a lot of experience, and so you'd be lucky to get him on your staff. So I'm sure that's true. Thank
2: you. I want to work on Victor's
1: campaign. It's my <laughs> goal.
0: I would be honored. I,
1: I think there will be one of those too. So, but Barbara, this has been so fascinating. I loved talking with you. I appreciate your taking the time to let our audience get to know you better. And, and I learned yeah. things. I mean, things like the journalism. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm astounded and happy to know all these things. So thank you very much for sharing with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. You have a very esteemed list of guests and I am honored to now be among them. Thank you.
1: Well, let me just say, you wrote an article. I was asked to do something for the student law, uh, student lawyer for the American Bar Association. And part of persuading me to do it was saying, well, here's a list of people who did it. And of course, the one that I read was yours because I picked you out of that list. And I thought, I can't ever say anything as smart as Barbara's saying, so I'm not going to do this. And I did finally cave in and agree to do it. So I have you to say, you almost got me not to do it because yours was so good.
2: Uh, I bet you, you have a lot, lot of for- wisdom. I know you have a lot of wisdom to share.
1: <laughs> but anyway, thank you for being with us today. And uh, go go teach those kids so that they can be smart and help our world to be a better place. Thank you. Yes, thank you
0: so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Professor McQuaid as much as Jill and I did. And we hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of iGen Politics. We'll be back next week with another episode. So be sure to follow us wherever you follow your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube if you watch us on YouTube. Like this video and also hit the bell for our weekly notifications.